Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Well, welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and we've been doing a series on banking on the Kingdom, and of course, that meant that we were going to take a little bit of a look at banking in general, or what we call banking today, and uh, in order to look at banking today, you had to look a little bit at the banking history, what we're Federal Reserve notes and how are they different than all the other bank notes that were traveling around in the world uh, before the creation of the Federal Reserve? Whose idea was it to create the Federal Reserve? Who was the idea to create the United Nations? Who was the idea to change the way in which Americans viewed history? And why is history important? Is because we make lots of mistakes in our life. We make a lots of mistakes in the past. And if we don't learn from the past, we're liable to make the same mistakes again. And, of course, we do that. Now, the problem is there's all kinds of information that is out there floating around that just isn't so. And so when people become attached to that information that is not really true... It is difficult for them to let go of what they have already accepted as true to see the truth, which is something contrary to what they have accepted, because they accepted some information that was false. This is the problem with the tree of knowledge. The tree of knowledge is all the things that you learn from observation in the world, including, you know, watching TV or or listening to a preacher somewhere who's going to tell you what Jesus said. And so, eventually we're going to move into a series where we're going to actually look at what Jesus actually said, because we know the doctrine of Jesus is what Jesus said. So you need to actually start there to understand the gospel of Jesus. The gospel of the kingdom, the gospel of righteousness. You have to start with what Jesus said. But the problem of starting with what Jesus said is you got all these other things lumped in on top (laughs) of what you think Jesus said that just ain't so. And so we have to get you to set down some of the previously conceived information kind of prune the hedges of your tree of knowledge to say, you know, this is not really what is true. And this is not really really what is true. Because you build everything upon a foundation of information that you have been fed since you were a little child. And you're fed, you know, by the media, by everything around you. And some of that is either incorrect or misplaced or the values of the information that you have, you've you put it too high a value. It's not really that important. It's something else that's important that maybe you don't even know. So, I mean, it's, it's just a mass of confusion. And in order to bring order out of that confusion, we don't necessarily need to plant a whole orchard of trees of knowledge but we need to learn to eat of the tree of life. 
Because the tree of life organizes, brings a, a order out of chaos to us. And the tree of life is this thing that we can tap into, this spiritual thing that we can tap into, this Holy Spirit that can actually tap into us and share with us what is true, where you have this, like, sixth sense of understanding that this is not true, something's wrong here, something doesn't fit, I don't know why yet, but I am cautious of this, and that's the Holy Spirit. The problem is, is there is always a counterfeit Holy Spirit. You know, some dark angel that can appear as an angel of light. You know, this is the principle that we hear talked about in in scriptures. That we can be deceived by somebody who sounds true, but what they're telling you just ain't so. It's not true. It's false. It's fake news. And like I said before, there was fake news. There was fake good news, which is the fake good news of the Bible. And I had a conversation this this week with somebody who, you know, when he first was making a comment, it sounded like, well, he might be actually, because he could see that the modern church is not doing things the way the first century church was doing. That's That's kind of obvious. If to anybody who does a little bit of research... That the first century church was doing things quite different. And so I thought, well, okay, so where is he taking this? And so in exploring through the conversation, I discovered that, yeah, the first century church was doing something completely different than the modern church. But what he thought the first century church was doing, it wasn't doing. And and one of the crookses of it was the fact that I wrote something concerning uh worship I actually wrote it it's a part of the free church report and I included it in a page uh that we have up at preparing you on worship and uh and we'll get to that after a little bit but he he said I didn't find any sites in these four paragraphs of this little section that was clipped out of the Free Church Report and put into this article on worship. And so, you know, I, I didn't know what he was talking about at first. It, so he, I says, well, what, where, he told me what paragraphs, and I went and looked at the paragraphs and saw it was clipped from the book. And I says, well, the sites are in the whole book. That what the reason I put that at the end of this article on worship was that it it was a summary added in the book, which is free online. You can get the free church report at hisholychurch.org. Look for it with the search engine, and you can find it. But uh, in you know in the book itself, there's like 800 footnotes. There's all kinds of sites. It's going through you know a whole process, so you can see what the early church was doing, what we should be doing today, how it fits into the legal system of the world today uh, in this country and every country, and why Jesus designed the church the way he did. Because Jesus established the church. He appointed the apostles. I appoint unto you a kingdom. 
And and he had a kingdom to appoint to them because he took the kingdom away from the Pharisees, which he said he was going to do. I'm going to take the kingdom away from you and give it to you know other people, another nation, who will bear fruit. Because what they were doing was not bearing fruit. Well, we know some of the things that they were doing, or at least some of the critis- criticisms of what they were doing, in the biblical text, you know, that the Corban of the Pharisees was making the word of God to none effect. They were not attending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. Uh, they were greedy for gain. Uh, they were, you know, like whited sepulchers. They looked real good on the outside, but underneath they were uh, covetous. You know, and he points that out, that they were covetous. You know, these, these Pharisees didn't like him because they were covetous. What? Well, What's that all about? Well, that's all there. But I see modern preachers with the same Corbin of the Pharisees. I see modern preachers with not pure religion, but spotted religion, spotted by the world. And they read those verses and they don't know what they're reading. They don't know what they're, what they're actually saying. And they don't really want to know. That's, that's really the problem. A lot of them do not want to know the truth. They are comfortable with what they have. And so we we started out this series on banking and to show you that, you know, the prediction of Klaus Schwab, which is really kind of funny, you know, that you will have nothing and you will be happy. The reality is, is that's not a prophecy. That's a historical report. <laughs> you You own nothing today, virtually nothing, and you think you're happy, or you did until COVID, or until the shutdowns, until runaway inflation, and which isn't even, it's just getting started. It's not runaway yet. But then there's other problems on the horizon that are coming around the corner, and if you were eating of the Tree of Life, you could see them. And in our last show, which was the sixth in a series on banking, uh, you know, I, I gave you a little bit of glimpse into the fact that, you know, the mark of the beast is already here. Most of you already have it. You're already, you got your badge of servitude. You don't own your, any property you have legal title to. You don't actually own. That's the law. It says it right in the law. Yeah, people don't want to read it, but it's right there. It's been that way for centuries. It's not a new thing. Yeah, there were people who were predicting it, but they were censored. They were censored by your churches. Now they're censored by the mass media. And yet you still see, well, wait a minute. There's, there's a truth here we're missing and, and that keeps getting censored. And you're starting to see some of the lies, some of, some of the pervasiveness of the lies. And you're starting to see that there's a problem. And some of you are starting to wake up that there's a problem. And you're trying to do something about it. So what do you do? What's the way back? You know, like I just threw that out that, you know, if you have legal title to anything, you don't own it. That's the definition of legal title. They didn't change it recently. It's always been the definition of legal title. But nobody's pointed out, you know, legal title doesn't include the beneficial interest of the property. And the beneficial interest is the right to use it. If you want to use it, you have to pay a use tax, which we call property tax. So yeah, you own nothing. You don't own, you own, you own a legal right to rent. 
But they can evict you. They can evict you for almost any infraction. You're, you're totally back in the bondage of Egypt. We've showed that over and over again. But you want to know the way back. And, and some of you want to go back to the Constitution or, or back to these other things. And we, we've got whole books written free, available for free. We're not selling. We're not like all these other preachers. You know, that, you know, we got a little sermon and if you want to hear the rest of it, you know, I mean, even Daily Wire and all these guys are doing that. They have their, their 20 minute, uh, podcast or whatever. And then if you want the whole thing, you, you have to, you have to pay for access to that. You know, uh, no, well, actually we do have, you have to pay in order to get access to everything. <laughs> <laughs> you have to actually start doing what Christ said. But you should be doing that anyway. But we have, and almost everything is available right there, online, for free. Uh, but if you want private lessons, <laughs> so to speak, then you have to join the network like Christ commanded and uh, start caring about other people as much as you care about yourself. And we went over that you know, the, the whole idea of the New World Order is to kill care amongst the people. And they actually say this. And there was actually a video of them having plays calling to kill care. And, and it, and, but people saw it and they, you know, they're worried about the owl and all this stuff and not seeing what is, how do they kill care? How did Rome do it? First, to destroy Rome was he who spread amongst them gifts, gratuities, and benefits. Because that's the greatest destroyers of liberty. And FDR did it. LBJ did it. Barack Obama did it. Bill Clinton did it. Uh, Trump did it. And I just shared a video on Facebook uh, just moments before the show. Turning off my phone. Uh, Sossel just did a deal. It's a hundred year anniversary of communism. People can't figure out why communism didn't work. Some people can't figure. Actually, a lot of people who hate communism, they don't know why it didn't work. <laughs> they, they do. They are willing to admit that it didn't work. But they don't really know why. Because if they really knew why, they wouldn't be doing the things that they're doing today. And, of course, Christ told us not to do those things. John the Baptist told us not to do those things. All the prophets told us not to do those things. But we're doing those things and we're preaching that we should do those things in what we call the church today. And we have to be willing to see that the church today is not the church established by Christ. At least generally speaking. We have to say generally because I, you know, I haven't been in every single church. Maybe somebody's doing it right. I know there are certain groups of people that are not far from the kingdom. And there are people in really bad churches that they themselves may not be far from the kingdom. Because they, they hear the words of Jesus. They know there's truth there. But what they need to determine is where the lie is creeping in. And if they could determine where the lie is creeping in, then they can repent of that lie and be filled with the Holy Spirit Ultimately, it's being filled with the Holy Spirit that's going to make the difference. But like I say, there's a counterfeit Holy Spirit out there. It's an emotional Holy Spirit where people think that they could feel the Holy Spirit. Well, you know, and they think they're born again. So we did an article on born again. 
But back to this guy on Facebook who's trying to, you know, he sounds sincere. But he had this problem with this this little section where I talk about elders. The elders of the church were not elder. The term elder was not an office of the church. And we may use that term office. I use it loosely here. I mean, there were bishops. You could call that an office of the church. It's not like what we think of when we say the word bishop today. Because we think of somebody who, you know, is appointed from above and he's in charge of a diocese or he's in charge of this and he can reprimand these people and exercise authority and defrock ministers and he can do all kinds of things. He has a lot of position of power and control and authority. But that's not the position of bishop created by Christ. Or the early church. They they were actually barred from exercising authority. One over the other. Christ said they couldn't do that. And it was not an office of power. It was an office of service. And that there was other people that... Well, we, we translate these words like deacon. Or minister. And there's a couple of words that are translated minister. But those are offices of the church. A deacon. He's a minister of ten. That's really what a deacon is, a minister of ten. That's where the word really comes from, if you look back at the etymology of the word and how it was used at that time. And Christ told them to sit down in groups of ten, families in groups of ten. And in ranks, he says, he commanded that his apostles make the people organize themselves in these ranks of tens. And, and 50s and 100s, because there were 5,000 people there when he commanded them to do that. And it was essential that they do that, or they wouldn't have been able to do all the things you see the church doing in Acts. But something happened over the years that we fell away from that. I mean, it was still around. Some of the remnants of that were still around during the American Revolution. It was a lot more prominent in America than it was in Europe, but it was still around, still in America at the time of the American Revolution. We had tithing men, which is, you know, a minister of ten, using the old English. And there were tithing men, hundreds of men, older men back in, you know, the 1100s, 1200s in England. And this is how they organized themselves before William the Conqueror. In the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You know, and the guy who sat in the position of over thousands was called a, a alderman. Which has eventually come down, that word has morphed and come down to his, not an elderman. An alderman was like an alderman in your present political structures. So the remnants, the bones are still there of these ancient systems of free societies. And some of the words have come down and altered slowly over a period of time. But you don't live in a free society. You live in a licensed society. A society that says, oh, you can do this and you can do that. I mean, like divorce. Moses gave the people divorce because of the hardness of their hearts. That's what Jesus says. 
it isn't the way it was meant to be from the beginning. So, your systems today license all kinds of things. I mean, you can abort millions upon millions of children. You, you can covet your neighbor's goods through the power of government. That's absolutely legal in America today and in most countries today. I, I say most. I, I think it's legal in all countries today. <laughs> but yet, in the ten statements of God, thou shalt not covet anything that is thy neighbor's. Desire anything that belongs to thy neighbor. You want to benefit from the sweat and toil of your neighbor without his choice in the matter. That, of course, is against the precepts, the statements of God. And if you go that way, there will be consequences because we know that God created a cause and effect universe and his laws are cause and effect. If you violate those laws, there will be an effect. But people don't, they're not taught that anymore. That they, they've given a different image. But his problem when he was reading these few paragraphs was this idea of elders was not an office of the church. Because we see in the Bible it says they appointed elders. But they were elders when they were appointed. They looked out amongst themselves. They didn't pick young men who were inexperienced. They picked elders of families. That's what an elder was. It was that way in the Old Testament. It's that way in the New Testament. That's heads of families, men of experience, men we know. We They have shown themselves to be diligent and at least taking care of a family. And they appointed those elders. They didn't appoint them to be elders. They appointed elders to do jobs in the church. Like the seven men who were picked in Acts 6. To fulfill a particular role because the daily ministration was being neglected to Greeks. And this is one of the things that we're going to look at. uh, Hopefully get to today. But we're going to start with the Edict of Milan. The other thing, the other, he highlighted another little word in the paragraph where I talked about the people of Milan electing a bishop. They elected Ambrose. And there's a whole history of this, how they elected Ambrose, where Ambrose was when that took place, what he was doing, why he had to take time off before he started his job as bishop of the church. And, and, of course, the reason why he didn't know anything about the church. He didn't know anything about Christ. He said, i got, I got to go read up on this if I'm going to be a bishop of Christ. And find out what he did. So he went and read up on it. And I don't think he did enough reading. <laughs> but we have lots of stuff that he did. One of the things he did is he appeared in front of the Roman Senate and asked the Senate... To exile and persecute those Christians who did not follow Christianity correctly according to what he just read. So this is Ambrose. So anyway, we're going to get into this, take a look at the Edict of Milan and why people went so far wrong and why we need and how, what we need to do to get back. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So I said we're going to look at the Edict of Milan, and uh, this is actually still a continuation of the Banking on the Kingdom series. We covered the banks of the world, 
and how they are actually undermining your rights and freedom. Not so much the banks, but the systems that they created and are created by the governments and, you know, the welfare. It's the gifts, gratuities, and benefits, but also the, you know, your economic structure, everything that is contrary to what God was saying from the beginning, contrary to what Christ was saying during the Gospel of Christ, that is opening a door that is leading you away from the way of Christ and into a way that degenerates the people, degenerates the next generation. And we've gone down this way tremendously long ways. And so how do we get back? You know, like I say, the the new normal was brought to you by the old normal. And the old normal was brought to you by the normal before that. And the normal before that. And the normal before that. And one of the places in the Bible that talks about, you know, the way back, it's saying, remember the ways of the ancients. So in the the final part of the conversation with this guy, at least where we've left it off, he, he's going to look at a page that I share with him and I may get to share with you today. And uh, hopefully I'm expanding these all the time. But he said, my view of elders being not an office of the church, but an office of the family, the head of a family was called an elder. That's That's just the definition of the word. I didn't make it up. Uh, that that is contrary to what he read in what he calls the anti-Nicene uh, authors. He calls them fathers of the church. I, I refer to them as writers. I don't refer to them as fathers. <laughs> uh, the, the father we have is our father who art in heaven. And uh, they, these were early writers before Constantine's influence and the influence of the Church of Constantine, uh, they were writing, and they wrote lots of things. Now, I will fully admit that some of those writers have survived and come down to us through the ages because they were given a reprieve by the Constantinian Church, who began to do what Ambrose wanted to do, began to persecute those Christians who said things that were contrary to what the Church of Constantine wanted to do. And, of course, I can tell you exactly what Paul and Jesus and John the Baptist would say about the Constantinian church. That's, I mean, I, we can go right to the, the words of their own mouth once you understand what the Constantinian church was doing different than the church established by Christ. Because in that difference, you can tell whether, you know, the church you're going to, is it a Constantinian church or is it a church established by Christ? Well, you just have to look at what Christ said. And it's it's abundantly obvious. But it's only going to be abundantly obvious if you're willing to set down some of the ideas that you have already accepted that Christ was against. And I'm shocked at the number of people that won't do that. And, and that they say, oh, oh, yeah, I heard that before, but I don't want to know that. I just want to know about this one thing. You know, elders, that's an office of the church. And when I read Ignatius and, and, uh, uh, Polycarp and, uh, Clement and these guys, that, from what I remember, he says, they were saying something different. 
well, when he said that, I thought, like, I remember reading those guys. <laughs> I, I didn't remember them saying anything different. Of course, this was really hard to pin them down, and I should have asked this question, and maybe I will. I don't know. Uh, but time is limited. And so uh, where – I don't think he could have answered it. Where did you read them say something contrary to that? Well, I didn't ask him that. And like I said, I don't think he could have answered it. And so I wasn't led to ask him that. But I was led to go read Polycarp and Clement and Ignatius and see what they had to say about elders, which was almost nothing. (laughs) But they did mention them. Uh, Ignatius mentions elders uh, and bishops and uh, deacons. And uh, the reality is, is he uses the words interchangeably, like elders and bishops are the same. Well, that's because they are the same. <laughs> because bishops are elders. They're elders of their family, and they're picking amongst the elders to be the bishop. But who's picking them? How are they picked? Were they picking them like Milan did? Uh, no, they didn't pick them like Milan did. They picked them like Christ commanded. And they picked them every day. There wasn't a, like an election day. They chose every day whether they wanted to walk with this bishop or not. And if they decided they didn't want to, they would just go another way. And that constant choice in the hands of every Christian kept the Christian community strong. It kept it as a union and disciplined group. But it was discipline from within. They learned to work together. Like the Stossel video I just shared talking about, you know, government aid coming because it was a hurricane. And his conclusion in his little five-minute video is that private aid was much more efficient, much more practical, much more responsive. And uh, it's like he's just discovering this. Well, Christians discovered it. John the Baptist preached it. Christ preached it. We see it in Acts. There were dearths going across the land. And Christians were sending relief. They actually used the word relief in the translation of the New Testament. Except for that word relief is not always translated relief. It it fits. But it actually means ministration. It's... It's what the church was doing, ministering to the people. To the pure religion was ministering to the needy of your society. And of course, when there's a dearth or a hurricane or a flood, there's a lot more people that are needy. But they still need ministering. You you don't say, well, okay, your house was destroyed because of the hurricane, but you're not a widow, so we're not going to help you. (laughs) No. No. This was what the early church was doing. And of course, when there were dearths, they gathered up contributions and they sent men with supplies and funds to help out people in these areas that were hardest hit and Christians were thriving and surviving because of that modern Christians will do a little bit of that but most of their charity is token so they're not very good at it it's like you know like <laughs> well I could get I, I actually cross if you wanted to lift something heavy you look around for big guys <laughs> You don't look around for little guys, you know. You look around for big guys, normally. Except I, I 
tell the story when I had to haul in carpet for a big uh, two-story uh, house that was turning into a bed and breakfast. Uh, it was an old school, an old church at one time. Originally, it was a church, I think. And uh, I think it was a Catholic church at one time. But uh, they moved it to another location. And while they were moving it, uh, somebody was lifting the power line with a stick standing in the tower of the church to get the tower underneath the power line. And the bell tower of the church was lined with copper and he didn't make it and died there. And they just, they didn't take the church where they were going to take it. They just pulled it over and did not go under the power line, but just parked it there. And eventually it became a school and became, uh, you know, uh, a uh, bed and breakfast. But anyway, we were hauling in the carpet and I was hauling in with it was just me and one other guy and these were huge rolls of carpet. And he was saying that he was surprised how I could help him so well that I did a really good job helping him because I knew how to move with another guy because like I had worked with him before, but I had worked with other people before. I had to carry in big heavy things before, and I knew how to do it. He said that when he was doing the carpet in a, a health center where there were all these weight machines and weightlifters and all the guys just had muscles on their muscles, he said they couldn't carry in the carpet. They They had the strength and the power, but they didn't know how to work together. That you and you you couldn't pick these up by yourself. You had to work with somebody else. They were heavy, and so working together is one of the strongest elements of a society. If it doesn't work together, if the society doesn't regularly work together, no matter how strong it thinks it is, it will not be strong. All you guys out there wanting to get your ammunition and your and your guns, like you're going to save the country, you're not going to be able to do it. Because you don't know how to work together. And you don't know how to work together because you've been too long dependent upon governments to do what you should be doing. If you're going to be the government of the people, for the people, and by the people, you need to be the social welfare of the people and have an organized system to do that. And social welfare can only be by charity, fervent charity, daily charity. Or you will not be a free society. And we'll show you that. We've already shown that before, but we'll show you that in looking at this Edict of Milan. Because this is what the Edict of Milan was supposedly altering. The way in which you took care of the needy of your society. The way in which you operated charity in Rome. They were going to do it differently. Now, they had done it differently in ancient times. The original temples weren't even buildings. But when they started building buildings, they were all built by donated funds. They were not built by tax dollars. Because they, they knew, they understood, this is before Polybius and, and the Caesars, they knew that if you did not build the charitable institutions of your society by free will offerings, you would not long remain free. They knew that. That was just a fundamental that had come down through their own prophets for years or centuries. But when that is forgotten, when that is no longer remembered in the land, the land will not be free. And 
And there's something that clouds you from seeing that truth. And it's because you've already taken those steps away from righteousness. And of course, that's the kingdom of God. You're supposed to seek the kingdom of God, right? But the righteousness of God, which understands that you don't take care of one another through force, but through love. If you don't learn that, you will not learn to work together. You will not learn how to be a strong people. You will be a scattered flock. And scattered flocks don't last long on the desert. I can guarantee you that. They have to come together. So back to the Edict of Milan. And we'll touch on some of these things. I'm sure we'll go full circle like we always do. The Edict of Milan was this proclamation that established religious toleration uh, for Christian for Christians in the Roman Empire. Well, there used to be freedom of religion in the Roman Empire. Even at the time of Augustus Caesar, which was the first Caesar. Augustus was the first Caesar. Uh, you know, like I say, Augustus Caesar, who was called the Sater of Rome. Sater is translated Savior of Rome. His name wasn't Augustus, it wasn't Caesar, his name was Octavius. (laughs) But these are titles, like the word Senate, that's a title. The word Senate means old man. We would say elder. (laughs) The senators were elders. But they were elders, they were old men before they became senators. Because that's what they elected, They and but before they... When they first created the Senate, it wasn't a legislative body. It did not make laws for the people. It did regulate some of the business of the nation, but that was minor, very minor. Uh, But it was a way in which the nation could come together and form a larger group, because these were representatives of different areas, in case they were attacked by a large group, they could come together quickly. But what really bound the people was their system of hearths, which were these small groups of family groups that gathered together and helped one another out and gathered together with other local hearths and helped them out, and eventually they got enough hearths together that they would elect a senator that would go to Rome. And this is how they had this representative government. But it wasn't a government where the government was telling everybody and taxing everybody. They owned their own land. There was very little property tax in in Rome. There was no labor tax in Rome. There were taxes if you owned slaves, and they were, but people were expected to contribute. I mean, the army was all volunteer army before Julius Caesar, well before Julius Caesar. So, how how do you protect a whole nation with a voluntary army? How how were they so efficient as a military operation? Well, it was based on their system of charity. Their system of religion, which wasn't about this God or that God. Those gods just represented characteristics that they considered valor, valorous, virtuous characteristics of society. So anyway, that 
that religion had faded away, another religion had come up, another kind of politics, that they had been a republic, and then they became an indirect democracy, uh, and then they became a socialist state with free bread. That's what destroyed Rome, the free bread. Uh, many historians will agree to that. Because the free bread brought in corruption and offices of power. Once you... St- Augustus Caesar created these extra offices, which we've talked about, Principas, Civitas, uh, Apotheos, and uh, uh, Imperator. Imperator was an office of the government, which means commander-in-chief. So those three offices, those are offices of power, and that's going to bring in corruption because everybody's fighting for that position of power. And it got so bad during the decline of the Roman Empire, that there was a different emperor every month. <laughs> so, <laughs> because, and, and their idea of firing an emperor because they didn't have the checks and balances in their government, uh, it usually meant that he had to be executed. Uh, some were exiled, but most were, that you, you fail at that job, you're done. So anyway, but that's, that's the whole history of how they get to this. But now we're way up at the Edict of Milan and, you know, 300 years, 313, I think is February, 313 it was signed. And it was an agreement to do with a certain part of the uh, society of, of Rome. It, didn't, it, it expanded out, but it started in this Edict of Milan where it was an agreement between Constantine I and uh, Licinius. And they signed it. And, and just to give you a little bit of an idea, there's a lot more to it, but uh, some of the verbiage of it is, uh, you know, the wording of it, at least translated by Eusebius. When we, Constantine Augustus, he took that name Augustus too, because it has to do with that being the savior of Rome. And Licinius Augustus, both claiming they weren't, these are titles, again, not names, met so happily at Milan and considered together all that concerned the interest and security of the state, we decided to grant to Christians and to everybody the free power to follow the religion of their choice in order that all that is divine in the heavens may be favorable and propitious towards all who are placed under our authority. Now, we could go into a lot of the different verses there, but basically he signed the Edict of Milan for the security of the state. And if you get into the psychology of of Constantine, as well as the finances of Constantine, cost a lot of money to create an army and uh, and fight. And now Licinius is going to end up in a lot of trouble because he's signing this agreement with Constantine. <laughs> and and uh, not only Licinius, but all of his family, everybody, because Constantine was not really a Christian. But he was superstitious. And he believed that whoever the God of the Christians were, that it, when you went against those Christians, when you persecuted those Christians, you suffered for it. 
he believed in a cause and effect universe. He did did not believe in the message of Christ, but he believed that if that that God had a recompense, it was a big mistake to go against that God. And but I think the real motivation was the fact that religion costs a lot of money. Religion is the welfare of society. That's what religion was. It's it's from the word threskia, uh, which has to do with, in the Greek, threskia, which has to do with what you do. And the Romans for a long time knew that you had to take care of the needy of your society. This is what bound your society together. And like I said, originally it was done through free will offerings, but eventually it was done through forced offerings. The temples were taken over by the state. And in this text, they capitalize the word state there. And he, he refers to it, the security of the state. Now, in a free society, the state is in the hands of every individual, family. You, know, you have the, the elder of that family is the holder of the estate of that family. We call it an estate. And that estate will eventually pass down to the children. In a free society, there's no inheritance tax. Everything that you have produced that you still have at the time you die will go to your heirs. It will be passed down from generation to generation. The kingdom of God has always been from generation to generation. Not from political leader to political leader. And so, that's a free society. You probably don't you're not in a free society. There's probably inheritance tax and there's property tax and there's sales tax or every transaction you make and there's tax on your labor. If you have all those things in your society, you know you're not a free society. Because you, you don't even, you're not a capitalist society. A capitalist society, you own the means of production. You own your land. You own your labor. You own what you produce with your labor. Uh, you own your family. Your family belongs to you. And if you need help from other people, you have to get it from them voluntarily. And that's, that help from other people, that's religion. That's how you care for one another. And you either do that through free will offerings or you do it through forced offerings. If you do it through forced offerings, you're not going to be a free society for long. You're going to degenerate. And we've explained all that. So, but now he wants to turn religion back over to the people. Religion was the job of the temples. That's where you went to get your free bread is in the temples. That's where you would get your, you know, free cheese, free wine, free certes, or whatever it was that you were going to get from the government, you'd get them from the temple. They were distributed through the temple. Even in the early church, the apostles worked daily in the temple and part of that daily working in the temple was to rightly divide the bread from house to house. And of course we see in Acts that sometimes they were taking up collections and sending relief to places like Greece. Uh, you know, other nations. So they were taking care of their needy in a local way. But when there was a dearth or a hurricane or a flood or whatever, they would take care of the needy by sending people like Paul and Barnabas. And we see them doing that in Acts. But the modern church doesn't do that. I mean, they do have some charitable outreach. But if you add up all the charity that they receive in almost every church, except for maybe some of the Amish churches, 
but uh, all the other churches, you you know, if you don't want to wear suspenders and grow a beard, you may want to join another church, and they're not really available that is actually doing what Christ said. Because uh, Christ said to take care of the needy through charity, through love. John the Baptist, that was the whole John the Baptist. You know, they they think, oh, well, we have to get baptized. But John the Baptist was saying, you know, they said, well, what happens when we get baptized? Well, then you have to start taking care of the needy through free will offerings. You know, if you have two coats, share, do the same in meats. That was the message of John the Baptist. It wasn't getting dunked in water. He says, I only baptize you with water. So are you ready for the baptism that he did promote? You know, with fire and the Holy Spirit? Well, come back and we'll talk about that baptism when we get back. So welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So this Edict of Milan did provide some reprieve from the very clear persecution imposed upon the Christians who were trying to care for their society through a network of free assemblies. And we see those free assemblies being served uh, with relief, uh, with the daily ministration when it was needed, All not only locally, uh, dividing the bread from house to house, but all over the Roman Empire. And ev- evidently, there's evidence that it went beyond the Roman Empire. And we see this, you know, th- this... Uh, mention of this network at least in Acts 11 also in Acts 6 and in numerous verses of the Acts of the Apostles and we see evidence of it also in the other epistles now it isn't constantly hammered on people like I often have to do because they were living it already And but you have today you have people saying well look they appointed elders we need to appoint elders well, do you have any elders? <laughs> do you have heads of families? Uh, because that's what an elder was. And then you can appoint those heads of families to do certain jobs of the church. Well, what was the job of the church? Well, we see it in Acts, providing relief for Christians all over the world. Rightly dividing the bread from house to house. Also preaching Christ. You know, they had to visit the widows and orphans. They didn't just visit them and say, did you get your social security check this week? They were the social security check. They were the way in which they cared for the needy of their society. They did not go to men who called themselves benefactors but exercised authority. Now, trying to impart that to that individual who I was discussing this with was like pulling teeth. Yeah, but what? He wants to go back to... I'm not talking about covetousness. I'm talking about elders. We have to pick elders to be in our church. And those elders have to get up there and give us a good feeling so that we think we're filled with the Holy Spirit and that we're born again. I mean, that's basically what he's saying. Now, you can detect sarcasm in my voice when I say that. Because we all know, those of you who listen regularly, those who've gone to the websites and looked at the articles and listened to the recordings that we're making more and more available, that if you're born again but still working iniquity, you're not born again. You're not born again unless you love the light. And if you still work in iniquity, you don't love the light. And it tells you that right there in John. 
But the elders that people are picking aren't going to that and reminding people that covetous practices is iniquity. It's idolatry. The Bible even tells you covetousness is idolatry. That's what it says. I'm quoting. Do you know where it says it? Ask your minister. If he doesn't know where it says it, don't. If he doesn't even know it says that, he should probably not be your minister because he's not a minister of Christ. So, what was saving Christians during these durves had been the Corbin of Christ, which was the practice of pure religion. And, and he instituted this Corbin of Christ. And you say, well, wait a minute, I don't, I don't remember the Corbin of Christ mentioned in the Bible. Well, what's the word Corbin mean? It means sacrifice. So if I say the Corbin of Christ, I'm just saying the sacrifice of Christ instituted the church. And we know that. I mean, it was sealed in his blood. He says, yeah, I, I am a king to Pontius Pilate. Thou sayest that I'm a king. He didn't even have to say it. You already said I'm a king. That's why I'm here. And he, are you the king of Judea? Was he the king of Judea? Was he the anointed, which is what Christ means, the Messiah? Which Messiah means anointed. So anybody who was anointed, I mean, David was the Messiah because he was anointed. But Christ was anointed too. And so he was the Messiah. Was he the Messiah to come to save the people from the bondage of the world? The bondage of death itself in this cause and effect universe? Well, the Bible says he was the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed. And you know, the Bible also says there was another king, one Jesus, who we call the Christ, the anointed. But we got a lot of other people coming out there saying that they are sent by Christ, they are anointed by Christ, they are of Christ, they are of the anointing. But they're not telling us to do what Christ said. As a matter of fact, they're often telling us to do what Christ said not to do. So if we're personally anointed by the Holy Spirit, then we will understand the sacrifice of that anointing, the Corban of Christ. And so, you know, I've added to that page on the Corban of Christ. Uh, and because I have these conversations, I see, you know, like, okay, so what am I learning here, Christ? <laughs> and it gets me to write these pages so that we can all see this Corbin of Christ and make it a part of our life. Now, we can't do it with our own will. We can't do it with our own knowledge because we don't know who to give to and how to give and when to give and how much to give unless it's by the leading of the Holy Spirit. But we know that the institution of this sacrifice of Christ, this Corbin of Christ, this church established by Christ, which is to preserve His doctrines, not my doctrines, not somebody Constantine's doctrines, but the doctrines of Christ 
And so this is why we're going to have to eventually get deep into the doctrines of Christ and find out if we're actually doing what Christ said. Because if you're not, it's going to be bad results because that's just the way it is. The Corbin of Christ, the, the ministers of the church were able to rightly divide the bread from house to house, which we can, we can see in, uh, Acts 2.46. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread, which is dividing bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. So, that that's what the church was doing. It, there's redistribution of wealth in the kingdom of God. And there's redistribution of wealth in the governments of the world and the communist, socialist governments of the world. There was certainly in Rome. The difference is, is that the redistribution of wealth in the kingdom of God is by your choice. You give the charity. Now, obviously, you can, every morning you can get up and walk down the street and see, if, you know, knock at every door. Do you need any help? Do you need any help? <laughs> Do you need any help? <laughs> Not very efficient. So Christ said, no, sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands. Organize yourselves for the purposes of Christ, which is to learn how to care for one another in a way that strengthens the poor. And, of course, that network was first in Jerusalem and then all over the Roman Empire. So they were doing that in Jerusalem. And it worked pretty good. But it's not enough for you to love those who love you. You have to love those you don't even know. That's an that's an important part of this uh, ministry, Deconia, in the Greek. Uh, it's it's a word that is translated ministry, uh, ministration, ministering, and uh, nine other miscellaneous ways. It appears about thirty four times in the Bible, uh, and, and it's. It's from other words that mean very similar, but but that's relief. That's it's also translated relief, and that's the word that we see there when it talks about relief uh, on an international basis. When we read in Acts eleven twenty nine, then the disciples, every man according to his ability, determined to send relief. Unto the brethren which dwelt in Judea. So, that's redistribution of wealth. But it's by every man choosing, determining what he had the ability to give. That's right in accordance with the parables of Christ. That you know, tell us about the good steward who goes around and, you know, he forgives debt. You know, how much do you owe? Well, I owe this much. This is how much I should give. Well, how much can you afford? What's your ability to pay? What you should give? Well, I can only give this much. He gets to decide. He gets to determine. 
and and the good steward says painful. That's how you collect taxes in the kingdom of God. But we don't call it taxes because it's not forced. You get to choose how much you want to contribute to the needy of your society. But where is your society? I mean, you say you're Christians. Do you know where all the other Christians are? Do you know how to get a home? Do you know if they need help today? Do you have any network in place where you could find out if they needed help or not? Why didn't you start one? (laughs) So... (laughs) Because Christ said to start one. And we see here in Acts eleven twenty nine they're able to do it. And they're able to send the funds off with people who could deliver them. Efficiently. To where they needed to go. And help out the needy in those other places. Where they don't even know the people in those other places. But the network knows. Because the network is a body. And it's connected to a brain. But that brain is God. It's operating through the Holy Spirit in all these people. Acts 14.1 we see, And it came to pass in Iconium that they went both together into the synagogue of the Jews and so spake that a great multitude both of the Jews and also of the Greeks believed. So, there were lots of people. This international group and network. So that we can see like in Acts 6, 1, way back, that's earlier. And in those days when the numbers of disciples was multiplied, there arose murmuring in the Grecians against the Hebrews because their widows were neglected in the daily ministration. Well, this is one local Jews. This is Jews all over. And so they ended up picking the seven men. But how did they pick the seven men? Peter didn't say, well, I got some buddies over here that I can appoint to this job. And uh, I can put them in charge of all the money necessary to go to the Greeks. Uh, no, he didn't say that. He said, look out amongst yourselves. Pick men you choose. And we will appoint them over this matter. Well, why didn't they just pick them, elect them, and then they don't even need Peter? Because of Augustus Caesar. <laughs> well, not just Augustus Caesar. But, see, if you don't know the context of what's going on at the time, you don't really know history. If if Peter appointed them, then Peter can unappoint them. So if corruption arises, he can unappoint them. But he shouldn't choose them. You choose them. This is, this is the power that Jesus had to cast out the money changers of the temple. That, that power came down to Jesus Christ through David. David, when they set up the, the central temple, which was going to be, you know, the word Corbin is not only means sacrifice, and it not only appears in the Bible as Corbin, it also appears in the Bible translated into the word treasury, because your sacrifices went into a treasury that was in the temple. And so they take that word Corbin. Is it lawful to put this money in the Corbin? They translate the word treasury. 
because they had a central treasury. But Jesus warns you about a central treasury. Because you, you, your real treasure is in the people that you're going to help out. Because when they get on their feet, they will be able to help you out. Of course, you want them now to give to them in a way that gets them on their feet. You don't want to give to them in a way that weakens them like they did in Sodom. You want to give to them in a way that strengthens them and strengthens their love for you because you helped them out. Not because you were forced to, but because you did so by your own choice. You determined to help them out. You made the sacrifice to send them relief. And this binds you together. If you're not doing that, you can forget about the militia. It ain't going to work. Now, it's not the job of the church to start a militia. (laughs) We're, We're not in the militia business. We're in the job of the charity business. But we're here to help you create the bonds that are needed in a free society. Those bonds are essential to having a free society where people will come to the aid of others. I mean, the militia was coming when there was these storms and floods and famines and fires. If they needed to build a school, it was the militia that built the school in early America. If they needed to fix a road, it was the militia that built the road. That's how they learned to work together. Now, if there was an army that attacked, they were already good at working together. They were already good at shooting because they had been shooting squirrels, you know, shooting a right eye out of a left-handed squirrel. <laughs> Whatever. So, but what made them strong was that they had a system of charity where they built the schools and built the roads and fixed the bridges themselves. Now, in those days, they were making the bridges out of wood. But it doesn't mean you couldn't do that making it out of steel. Uh, you could do all kinds of things if you started thinking like the kingdom. But to think like the kingdom means you have to start repenting of the way you've been thinking, which is you're thinking that the benefactors of the government who exercises authority is supposed to take care of all the needs of your society. That is not the case. That is not the way. And the modern church says, oh no, you go ahead and elect anybody you want. Just come here and make sure you tie to us so that we can take our vacation and so that we can build a really nice building and we can put in a good sound system and a big, uh, you know, screen TV and We can entertain you. No, that's not the church. And and you can see what they're leaving out of the gospel of Christ. Now, there's some evidence that there are groups out there that are starting to think in this term of helping one another. But it it must be help in a way that strengthens the poor. Now, what the Edict of Milan was doing, we'll just briefly touch on this, was not only opening up this door because, see, the, the, the temples of Rome were the ones that were providing the free bread of their society almost entirely. They were almost, of Rome, of the Greeks, they were almost entirely dependent upon uh, the free bread that came from those institutions, which is why Paul is talking to the treasurer of Corinth and explaining how they need to do it. 
So the Pharisees had instituted a similar system through the temple in Jerusalem that was built by Herod, who didn't just build that temple, but he also built the Temple of Roma for people who didn't like the idea of circumcision or whatever. You know, they liked the they liked the statues of Roma, this pretty girl up there handing out food. Uh, so they, but they, the understanding it wasn't the name of the Temple of Jerusalem or the Temple of Roma. It was the way in which they operated. You signed up, you registered, and of course, if you read our article on Herod and baptism. That baptism was a, that's a Jewish tradition. It was around for a long time. And we have articles on that to show you how, I mean, it's been around since Sinai and it was around even before that. This idea of washing up and changing the way you do things. And, and in Egypt, they had, the way they had done things was the government provided the welfare of society. And because of that, a portion of their labor now belonged to the government. That's what happens when you ask the men who exercise authority to take care of the needy of your society. You end up becoming subject to those men who exercise authority. And you go under their authority, which is what Constantine was talking about. Those those who are placed under our authority. And what places them there? Well... That's a debatable item. But we know in Egypt what placed them under the authority of the Pharaoh is they didn't have provisions of their own and they had to go and beg for provisions of Pharaoh. And he says, well, we'll give you provisions, but we will now own one-fifth of your labor, 20%. You 20% of your labor every year had to go into the government. And that was the bondage of Egypt. Now, we were never supposed to go back there again, according to the Bible, and Christ didn't come to deliver us back into the bondage of Egypt. So if we're back in the bondage of Egypt now, because we weren't back in 1776, but if we're back in the bondage of Egypt now, it's because we haven't been doing what Christ said. We may have been doing what churches say, but we haven't been doing what Christ said. And we need to get back to doing what Christ said if you're going to get back to liberty under God, which is what the kingdom of God is all about. It's not about revolting against Constantine. It's the fact that you've already been revolting against Christ. So you have to go back to what the church was really doing. And that's going to take some time to learn, which is, of course, when God was going to take the Israelites out of Egypt. There had to be plagues first, where they weren't taking the benefits of Pharaoh, no more straw, no more leeks and onions from us. You're going to have to glean in the field at night for your benefits. You're going to have to go to be a little overtime. Now all of this came about in the time of Constantine because back, well, you can go way back, but you can go back at least to uh, uh, Septimus uh, service who outlawed private religion, private welfare. That's what religion was, was a system of welfare. But the religion of Christ was welfare by that private determination, that free choice, this fervent charity. But the welfare of service, Severus, was, and most of the emperors, Augustus, 
was welfare, what we would call legal charity. It was government charity. Government takes away from this guy and gives to you. Now, Augustus Caesar did it. Be- oh, well, let's go back to Julius Caesar. Julius Caesar did it because he invaded Gaul and sold million people into slavery. <laughs> Had lots of money because of it. And so he's, he provided legal charity by taking away from Gauls. And, I mean, how many Gauls do you know? Who cares about them? So they put up with that. But eventually, you know, like Margaret Thatcher says, eventually you run out of other people's money and then you have to start taking from the people themselves. But uh, service returned victorious from having vanquished the kings who had taken part in the Niger. Uh, it was kind of a rebellion against him. Uh, he published his cruel edicts against Christians in the year of Christ 202 and uh, a tenth of his reign let's see how did he put that uh, oh that was uh, okay in the tenth year of his reign but I'm looking here at a translation but the general laws of the empire against the foreign religions and the former edict of uh, several emperors against the Christians were sufficient, warrant many governments to draw the sword against them before that time. And we find that the persecution was very hot in Africa and for at least two years before and under the council of Saturninus. So anyway, the point was is that they were saying you couldn't have any of these private religions. You had to join their systems of social welfare operated through the temple. Under Augustus, you could or you might not have to. Uh, Herod uh, set up his own system like this where there were many people in Judea who did not sign up for the temple in Jerusalem. A lot of them were Essenes. I won't say they were all Essenes, but they would not sign up for those. Many of them would not sign up for the benefits of those temples. When you got the baptism of Jesus Christ, according to the Pharisees, you were going to be cast out. Actually, the word they put there in the... And the biblical text is you were going to be put out of the synagogue, which was a synagogue is ten families. That's traditionally what it was at that time, which is why it's Jesus didn't have to harp on the idea of organizing in small groups of ten. It was well known that everybody did it. I mean, even the Teutons did it. Uh, but the idea was if you got the baptism of Christ, you were put out of this system of tens, hundreds, and thousands operating under the temple that was started by Herod. And then you were going to have to go to the temple of living stones started by Christ. And we'll explain more about that when we return to Keys of the Kingdom. Well, welcome back to Keys of the Kingdom. So we're talking about the Corbin of Christ. I mean, there was the Corbin of the Pharisees. And the Corbin of Christ was the sacrifice of Christ. 
So when we say that, I'm using these different words so you begin to understand their relationship. And, and the word Corbin comes from a word that actually means to draw near. So the purpose of the Corbin of the Old Testament was to draw us near God, or at least maybe God to us. The Corbin of righteousness was the Corbin, the sacrifice of Abel. And the sacrifice of Cain did not measure up in the same way as the sacrifice of Abel. It did not, the sacrifice itself did not make God happy. But God didn't say that Cain couldn't do it that way. He says, if you can do it that way and do it righteously, okay. It's the same way with the Pharaoh. The Pharaohs said that the people, 20% of the labor of the people had to go to him. Now, supposedly that was to go to him to reimburse him for all the grain that he gave them, plus to continue with the system of social welfare through the state. But that's really the city of Cain. The city of Pharaoh was the city of Cain. The city of Nimrod was the city of Cain. Nimrod was a mighty provider instead of the Lord. That's why the words actually in the Hebrew appeared to mean. It wasn't just a hunter. The words never translated hunter anywhere else. Somebody decided to translate it hunter, but it actually means provider. Provisions. A hunter at one time could provide provisions, especially if you were in a hunter-gatherer society. But the reality is, is the word has to do more with provisions. He was a mighty provider instead of the Lord. And Pharaoh was a provider instead of the Lord. But he did it on condition. I get to plow the people. I get to take 20% of their labor. Their, their means of production goes to me. Pharaoh's Egypt moved from capitalism to non-capitalism when it moved to a system. And all the people of Egypt were not in this system of Egypt until the famine. And not only the Israelites, but the people of Egypt went into this system where he, the government owned 20% of the labor of the people. That's not capitalism. It's It could be pseudo-capitalism. It could be a little bit like capitalism because 80% of your labor still belongs to you. But their land didn't, their livestock didn't, and they were now laborers for the government. That's the bondage of Egypt. But we weren't to go back there, and Christ didn't come to deliver us back there. He gave us the Corbin of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ, showed us the way of Christ. Is your church teaching you the way of Christ? Because I know the church established by Christ teaches the way of Christ. If your church is not teaching the way of Christ, it's not established by Christ. It's It doesn't have the doctrines of Christ. And it it's liable to lead you back into the bondage of Egypt, or maybe worse than the bondage of Egypt. Which if you've been following, you're already there. So how do we get back? So we need to understand the essentials of the Corbin of Christ. We know the essential complaint about the Pharisees by Jesus was also at the core of the Christian conflict with Rome. It was the Corbin of the Pharisees. It was the legal charity of the Pharisees. You know, legal charity means 
first you sign up, you have to pay in. You know, they'll be pay, pacing off your wheat fields and, and plucking the branches from your Cummins plant. And they will be doing all these things to get their share. So that they could redistribute the wealth of the people to the needy of their society. But that's not what Jesus was preaching. He was preaching that you had to do it by love. By that determining choice. You had to look out amongst yourselves and decide how much you individually wanted to give. And give accordingly. To take care of all the needy of your society. If you're, if you're doing part of the needy of your society by the men who exercise authority like they were in Egypt. Well... It's going to have the consequences. But it's also not pure religion. James tells us pure religion is when you're unspotted by the constitutional order and systems of government. So I think it's great that churches are starting to do some relief work, some charitable work. Uh, I know that a lot of the charitable work that some churches are doing is weakening the poor. It's not strengthening them. So that's bad. I know most of the charitable work done by the government, by the state, as as uh, Constantine called it, is weakening the poor. And we've done lots of shows on that to show you the degeneration of society over the last 100 years. So that now burning and looting is just protest. And people have become perfect savages. By your own systems of social welfare. That's what happens. And we've known that for thousands of years. Historians have told us this. Historians of historians have told us this. But the modern Christian doesn't know it. He still thinks, no, no. No, we elect the right Caesar. And he will redistribute our wealth according to his wisdom. Like Trump did. <laughs> I mean, Trump was good for business, but how much did he redistribute? How much did he shut down? Uh, the only thing he's redistributing is a vaccine, it seems like. Uh, towards the end, that was the only thing he was redistributing. And, and money borrowed against the future of your children, which is part of the reason why you have the inflation. I certainly can't blame it all on Trump. But it's the same spirit. It's still an office of power. Christ didn't create offices of power. He created offices of service. If you want to be free again, you have to go back to church. But it has to be a church established by Christ. And you know that by what they're doing and what they're saying. Not just what they're saying, but what they're doing and what they're saying. Because a lot of people are saying, Lord, Lord. But they're not doing what Christ said to do. They're not certainly not doing what God said to do. So we need to change our way of thinking. And we don't know what to change it to. We need the Holy Spirit. And that was one of the interesting things when I was reading Ignatius, looking for something about the elders that he said that was contrary to what I said. And every place I've looked so far. And, and I've looked at the even in the original Greek. Uh, every place I see these guys, I thought maybe I missed something. I still may be missing it. But I, I don't, I can't find anywhere where I said 
<laughs> these these early church writers, I'll call them writers, not fathers, were saying that an elder was anything more than an elder. because And you really see it with Ignatius because he's using the terms interchangeably. But other guys didn't seem to. So why is that? It's because all bishops were elders, but not all elders were bishops. Most elders were heads of families. And that's why we call them elders. They weren't... It's really just a kind of a mind game that people have played. And they read it. They think they already know what they're reading. They already have defined... Somebody was saying, you know... The Bible interprets itself. If you use a dictionary, uh, that's not the Bible. Well, if you've never used a dictionary, you can't read. <laughs> Chances are. I mean, all the words. A dictionary is just the definition of words. And I admit that you cannot depend upon a modern dictionary if you're reading ancient texts. You have to read those texts in the context of the of the times in which they were written, which is why we're trying to shed some of that light. I don't want to just create a classroom environment where we just sit and we go through every little step by step. But, you know, one of the things somebody uh, I was sharing with uh, somebody that you can get all of our keys of the kingdom of the past 10 years and plus, uh, on podcasts and that, preparing you and what have you. I mean, they're not all on podcasts, but uh, usually podcasts are the last 30 shows that we did. I really recommend that people start listening to them. You know, if you're driving somewhere or whatever, hopefully I don't put you to sleep. But uh, because we're giving you those pieces of the puzzle and nobody else hardly seems to be doing that. There are some people starting to wake up to different aspects of it. And if you can find somebody who says this clearer than us, let me know because we got to get together. I start having them as guests on the show and we'll talk about these things. But it's very clear that if you don't get back to pure religion, you will not be free. The essential, like I say, the essential complaint about the Pharisees by Jesus was that their Corbin was making the word of God to none effect and the Romans had a similar system of Corbin. Spelled a little different, but it's the same thing. The Roman welfare system was like the pharisaical welfare system set up by the Pharisees in Herod, in the government temple of Herod, or the government temple of Roma, which was also built by Herod. These governments evolved into socialist states through these temples. And they depended upon forced contributions of the people through taxation, like in the days of Egypt. That dependence upon men who called themselves benefactors of the people, but who exercised authority one over the other, was forbidden by Christ. He said, we were not to be that way. But yet, the modern Christian thinks that, no, no, that is the way to do it. Socialism is a Christian thing to do. But it's not enough just to get rid of socialism. You have to become 
a part of the Corbin of Christ. Because you people do need help. People do need care. And it awakens something in you, especially if you do this in a network. It teaches you how to carry large rolls of carpet <laughs> into uh, a building up two flights of stairs. Because <laughs> that's where we had to go eventually with some of it. Uh, we had to go up steps with all of it. Get it through doorways. I mean, these are rolls that were so wide they barely fit through a door. And there was only two of us. I don't know. He said if I hadn't have been there, he would have had to cut up all that carpet and then re-splice. <laughs> because there were a lot of big rooms that you could roll these carpets out in. So to get it in, the bigger the roll, the less work he had to do. So he was really thankful. I don't think he gave me any money, though. <laughs> I was just there working on other stuff, so I helped him. But that's the nature of Christianity, that you you gather together not to have your ears tickled, but to help other people. Not help yourself to other people in covetous practices. And certainly not help yourself to the future generations by borrowing money so that you can give out stimulus checks by the trillions, that your children will have to pay back. Nobody's going to forgive that debt. Well, Christ will. But the Chinese won't. <laughs> neither will neither will a lot of other people. You curse your children with your covetous practices. So you have to get away from the covetous practices, but you need to get into the practice of fervent charity. Where if you're wealthy, you need to be giving half of what you have away. I mean, I'm just talking cause and effect here. I'm not making rules up. I'm just, this is the way it works. And you, you will you will receive your reward in the heavens. You know, this is why Constantine was writing his Edict of Milan. So that, remember what he said about heaven? You know, it's mentioned... <laughs> now, I, I want you to understand that Constantine's view of heaven, or whatever he was imagining as heaven, uh, may not be the actual heaven, but then your view might not be correct either. And I'm not going to try to give you an image of heaven. I'm just saying that most of the images of heaven out there are incorrect. I mean, even the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God... We see those two phrases in the Bible. People are often shocked that the kingdom of heaven phrase is only in Matthew. It's not in any of the other Gospels, if I remember right. So, and you can hold, and we have a page actually, kingdom of heaven, kingdom of God, and I have a little template there where I show all the places that they have the words kingdom of God and all the places they have the kingdom of heaven. And, of course, you see that the kingdom of heaven is mentioned in Matthew. But you can find corresponding uh, verses in the other Gospels where they're talking about the same quote, the same event, but they say kingdom of God. So kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven is the same. But the word they use there for heaven, according to modern Greek scholars, is best translated world. 
Because it means from the center of the earth to the sky above. And so, the kingdom of heaven is the kingdom of the world. So, Christ was preaching a new world order. (laughs) He was preaching a world order. But it wasn't like Klaus Schwab's world order. Uh, Klaus Schwab's world order is a collective under the boot of a few. And actually, the collective, in his view, needs to be fewer. But in God's kingdom, the individual is king in his own family. But in order for him to sustain his own family, he knows he needs to care about the next family as much as his. Not only the next geographically, but the next chronologically. In other words, the future children. There is no inheritance tax in the kingdom of God. There is inheritance, but no inheritance tax. There is no income tax in the kingdom of God. There's income tithing. We shouldn't even say uh, income. But you share what God blesses you with according to your determination. If you haven't been doing that, you haven't been exercising one of the critical muscles of creation, of mankind, is the ability to decide to share his life with others. Which is why we have rampant divorce and millions of abortions and people don't want to share. They don't have to share. The gods of their world will take from their neighbor and give to them what they want. They think. Yeah, because Klaus is wrong. You won't be happy. <laughs> you, you've been happy in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. Well, there was a little glitch in the 80s. But, uh, no. No, it's not going to work. So when he says, all that is divine in the heavens may be favorable and propitious towards all who are placed under our authority. He lost me. Because we should be placed under the authority of God. But in order to do that, we have to take up the responsibility of God, which is the Corbin of Christ, the sacrifice of Christ. We have to be willing to sit down with one another in, in a network, efficient network, that is willing to sacrifice for one another in righteousness in a way that strengthens the poor. So that I should touch on it before we end this show, uh, which is coming up, but uh, Constantine did not legalize the church established by Christ. I don't like the word legalized anyway because legal has to do with binding. What Because Christ established the church. He made it a legal system with a lawful purpose. And that legal system was imposed upon his restrictions of the ministers of the church. We have restrictions on us. We're not to exercise authority one over the other. Uh, We are commanded to love one another. 
we are taught that it is wise to lay down your life for your fellow man because you will pick up a life more abundant in the long run. So there are restrictions that are explained in the doctrines of Jesus. But we'll have to save those for another time because when we start that series, Jesus said a lot. And what I, we have now is people, going back to the guy that I talked about at the very beginning of the show, they have listened to people uh, and they think they know what people wrote, like Ignatius and Polycarp and Clements, but they don't. And the reason they think they know is because other men told them this is what it meant. And they believe in those men. And if you really believed in what Jesus was and what he said and what he believed and what he taught, you wouldn't have fallen for these other men. But if you really believed in Jesus, you'd be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. If you were doing what Christ said, taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity, the scales on your eyes would come off and you would see more clearly. And that that's the truth that you can't make come about except by laying down your life in sacrifice for others. That's the only way to do it. If the masses continue with their appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them by the way of the rule of force and violence, the people will continue to become accustomed to feeding at the expense of their neighbors, continue to bite one another, and continue to be devoured one of another. Because they depend for their livelihood on the property of others. And nothing will result from that but force and violence. And it will spill out into the streets and spill out into your world. And you will have no defense from it. Kings and tyrants will rule over you. They will plunder and banish liberty. They will massacre those who say, no, no, wait, wait. Because they would not repent and seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So that's the way back is to seek that kingdom of God and his righteousness to sit down in the tens, fifties, hundreds, and thousands, start caring about one another, and each of you will have eyes that are open. Each of you will have uh, ears that will hear. And the pieces of the puzzle that we share with you on a weekly, daily basis uh, through the websites will start to congeal in your own hearts and minds. And you will know that God is God. And you will either desire to be the children of God or the children of the gods of this world. But that choice will be in your household, in your hearts, in your minds. I can't make that choice. You have to make that choice. You have to seek the Corbin of Christ in your day-to-day life and go the way of righteousness in your day-to-day life. That's absolutely essential if you are going to 
go the way of Christ. And so, you know, you know the, I, I was kind of, from memory, talking about a, a, a quote from Polybius there, which was telling us all these things before Christ came that Christ would tell us in his own words. Anyway, we'll, we'll talk about some other alternatives in the afternoon show. We're running out of time. And we just have to get away from the foolishness of modern religion and the lies of the fake news that has been representing itself as the good news and repent. So until then, peace on your house and may God be with you. God bless. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, 97640. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. Thank you.